Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. So tonight we are talking to Judy Little. She's a committee member of the Hunter Bird Observers Club and she has an A-class licence for bird banding. She's actively involved in a number of projects in the Hunter region of New South Wales. Welcome to the show, Judy Little. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested in this topic. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with bird watching and bird banding? My grandmother was a bird watcher, so I was aware of bird watching from a very young age. And when I was about 12, she took me on a holiday for a week to O'Reilly's guest house at Lemington. National Park. When I met my husband, he was also an avid bird watcher and had been since a young age. As he got closer to retirement age, he decided he didn't want to go fishing or any of those sorts of things. He decided he would get his bird banding license and set up a project close to where we lived. That process took him about three or four years and he's now had his A-class license for 10 years and I was helping out and learning things along the way, learning how to take birds out of nets and taking all the notes and scribing. I got to a point where I said, well, you know what, why am I doing this? So I decided I would get my C-class license. That was in around 2018, so it took a couple of years and did the training and got my A-class license. And I now have a couple of projects that I run and help out with other people that have got projects in the local area. Wow, congratulations on achieving the A-class license. It sounds like you must have had hundreds of hours of practice before you got to that level. For our listeners, can you explain exactly what bird banding is? Bird banding is where a person, or a group of people will go out into the bush or another area, depending on the type of birds they're targeting, catch the birds, put a metal ring on them. Sometimes colour bands are put on them if there's a specific aspect that they're studying. Sometimes they'll put transmitters or trackers on them and that tells us a lot of information about the birds, about their longevity, their size, movement. Do the bands stay on the birds for life? They do unless they wear out. They're a metal band and depending on the size of the bird, what type of metal is used. Do the colours represent anything in particular? They're particular to a project usually. Some people will study a particular species and they want to know about the movement, who's mating with who, or it might be more broad like shorebirds, for example, where every country along the flyway has a different colour code for their leg flags. It's incredible. It really is an international activity, isn't it? It connects the world. Yes, it is. How do you actually band a bird? Well, first of all, you've got to catch it. Passerines or bush birds, that's usually with a mist net, which is a very fine net. Probably looks a bit like a fishing net, but much, much finer, strung between a couple of poles and the birds fly into the net. Is this done at any particular time of the day? Usually early morning. So when it's cool, if it's too hot for us, it's too hot for the birds. If it's raining or too windy, that's not a good idea either because if we're uncomfortable, so are the birds. So I imagine your progression from a C-class to an A-class means at each level there's different activities you're allowed to do. Is that correct? And who who is the governing body for this type of activity? So the governing body is the ACCBS or the Australian Bird and Bat Banding Scheme. And they're based in Canberra. All the data that we collect gets sent to them and they keep it on a database. And anybody who wants information about data we've collected can approach the ACCBS. So you mentioned when you do this activity with the mist nets and trying to capture the birds to place the band on them, it's weather dependent. Are there any other risks or safety issues you need to be concerned about? Well, safety aspects for people is in the bush, through hazards, you've got snakes, ticks, mosquitoes, usual things that if you're out in the bush, you've got to be aware of. Risks for the birds is they get too hot or they get too cold. Some birds get more stressed than others. So you've got to be mindful of which species you're handling and how easily stressed they are. 
are, making sure you're not holding them for any longer than necessary. So how long would it typically take you to remove a bird from one of the nets, take the necessary measurements and place the band on and release the bird? It depends on what data you're collecting. For just your standard data, catch the bird, you take it out of the net, depending on how tangled it is in the net, because they can sometimes get particularly tangled, particularly smaller birds. They get very tangled sometimes. So it can then take anywhere from 10 or 15 seconds to remove a bird to a couple of minutes, depending on how tangled up it is in the net. But it generally doesn't cause them any lasting harm or any harm at all. We put it into a clean calico bag. We take it back to a banding station, which is usually a table set up with all the equipment, special pliers, rulers, calipers, scales, and obviously the data sheets that we need to fill in. So one person is usually dedicated as a scribe, some or part of the session. The bird gets weighed first before it gets taken out of the bag. So it gets weighed in the bag and then the bird is taken out. You put the band on its leg for a passerine bird, a bush bird, it's usually on the right leg, on the lower part of the right leg. Birds up to a certain size, an aluminium alloy type band. If you're doing shorebirds, it might be smaller shorebirds. It'll be an ink alloy band, which stands up to the salt water better. And once they get to a certain size, they're stainless steel, which are quite hard to put on. You have to get it just right and have to make sure the band is fully closed on the bird. Wow. So there's a real protocol to follow when it comes to banding. At all stages, it's the, the welfare of the bird comes first. So if the bird is stressed or anything like that, you've got the band on it, it might be hot or not comfortable, we'll release the bird, even if we haven't got all of the data that we want from it. All the way through, we're constantly monitoring the birds. Who decides which birds get targeted for these programs? It depends on the project. Some projects are more general, so it'll be anything you catch in that area. So that's your bushbirds, shorebirds. You might be targeting a particular migratory shorebird or you might be targeting just one or two species. So it's really the decision of whoever's project it is. There might be projects where you're targeting a particular threatened species. Depends on what information you're trying to gather on and where the gaps are in the knowledge base. Can you describe an incident that has happened while you've been out bird banding? Maybe you were with a particularly vicious bird or a large bird. <laughs> Something that was quite a challenge. Parrots can be a bit savage. You have to be careful to keep away from their bills. Their legs won't hurt you. Raptors, their bills won't hurt you so much, but be careful of their talons so you grab their legs first and make sure their claws are nowhere near your hands. Some birds, and not even big ones like bell miners, for example, they'll bite and scratch. It just depends on the type of bird it is, whether you come away with blood on your hands or not. Yours, not the birds. You uh, mentioned shorebirds. Now, some of the shorebirds can be quite large and burrow. Their nests are in hollows. How do you actually catch these birds to put bands on them? We use mist nets. Places like northwest Western Australia and Queensland and Victoria, they actually use a different method to catch shorebirds and they use called cannon netting where a net has projectiles attached to it and it's essentially a firearm so they are fired by an electronic charge and the net is fired over the top of a large number of birds so there's some slightly different capture methods involved birds in burrows like some seabirds that nest in burrows like shearwaters it's basically your arm down the hole and the bird grabs onto your finger and you pull it out ouch but don't generally bite too hard you know it's there birds don't have teeth so this is obviously something not everybody should be doing. No one can just go out and say, oh, look, I'm going to capture a bird and band it. That's not how it works. Absolutely not. To be able to handle birds at all, you first have to get a C-class licence. And to do that, you have to train under at least one A-class licence, actually at least two, because 
when you reach the requisite amount of training, you have to then be refereed. Generally, for a C-class licence, you need to have caught and handled at least 500 birds, plus knowing how to set up equipment, take records, collect the data. I guess you need to know your species well. Yes, I still get it wrong sometimes, but I think everybody does. You look at something, glance at it when you pull it out of the net in a rush, you just stick it in the bag. Oh, yeah, I think that's that. And then you get back and think, oh, no, it's not. It's something else. So you work as a team? We work as a team and it's actually very helpful as a trainee when you're still learning to see the birds up close because you see things that you don't see in the field, markings and colours and patterns that you might not may not otherwise be aware of. Is this an expensive hobby? I suppose it can be. We're fortunate in Australia where the ACCBS supplies all of our bands, all of our metal bands. They don't supply the colour bands. So if we want to colour band something, we again have to have approval, but we have to purchase the bands. Some groups like in Queensland and Victoria, they will get grants. We haven't got any grants yet, but well, we have had a couple of grants for shorebirds for buying some equipment. So what are some of the projects you're currently involved with? A general project in the local area regional park. Most of them are done in in national parks, but they can be done on private property. That's one that Greg's got. That's been running for 10 years now. So we're starting to get some longevity data about birds that are being recaptured that are, you know, resident birds, uh, as opposed to birds that are only there at certain times of the year. Projects can either go for a set period of time or they can be open-ended. Most projects are run by one person and that person submits all the data, but there are a number of projects, most of which are in New South Wales, that are what they call cooperative banding sites where anybody can go and band there. And there's one of those just down the edge of the Hunter Valley that's been running for over 50 years. Are there any projects you're involved with internationally? We have banded internationally when we've travelled. We've tried to find out if there's any banding going on nearby when we go overseas and go along for a a morning or just to see how they do things, whether it's a little bit different. They're a little bit different everywhere. Licensing's different in different countries. So we've done a little bit of banding in New Zealand. We've done some in England. We're about to do some in South Africa. Really looking forward to that. So seeing birds that we've never seen before up close and personal. What's one of the most exciting birds you've captured? There's so many. Give me a few. Exciting as in spectacular to look at or adrenaline causing? Let's go with the adrenaline. Raptors because you need to get to the net quickly so that they don't escape. And then it's generally two people to get it out of the net because someone's got to hold it still while the other person untangles it. I guess you're wearing gloves to handle those birds? No. You're brave. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had a bird get attacked while it's being caught in the net? Yes. Unfortunately, some other birds are predators, things like butcher birds, currawongs, magpies, ravens and crows. They will attack Kookaburras even will attack other birds in the net if they get the opportunity. If that happens, once you've emptied the net, the net gets closed so that those birds don't come back to that spot and you're not causing injuries to birds. It happens to everyone. It's unfortunate when it does happen, but fortunately it doesn't happen very often. So what are some of the migrating birds that you banned? Where do they come from? With shorebirds, they breed up in Siberia, so up in the Arctic, and they will travel up to 10,000 kilometres to come here for our summer. Others just come from either northern Australia. The little silver eye, who's about 10 grams, is very common. One of the projects we're involved in is on an island. During the winter, we get three subspecies of the silver eye regularly coming to the island. So that sounds like a pretty special island. We're very fortunate to have National Parks support to go out there four times a year. How long do you stay out there? Uh, We stay out there for 
two nights, three days usually. If people are interested in bird banding, what are some of the ways they can get involved with it? If they don't know anyone in their local area who's involved, they can contact the ACCBS in Australia or the equivalent body in the other country to find out if there's any A-class banders in their local area. And most people are happy for people to come along and see what happens and find out whether they're interested. It isn't for everybody. Um, If you've got two left thumbs and can't get birds out of a net, it's going to cause more harm to the bird than what you're going to get out of it. You know, not often, but occasionally we'll say to people, look, I'm sorry, this is not for you. But most people that are interested generally can then progress to get their C-class license, which is a fairly simple process, and then start the training. And we encourage people to go and get training with as many A-class banders as because everybody does things a little bit differently. They set up their nets slightly differently, the different types of records that they keep and things like that. So what should someone do if they find a bird with a band on it? If it's a lie, if they can get a photograph of the band and get the number because the bands are all individually numbered. So every bird that's got a band on it has got a different band number. The band number is made up of the size of the band and then a five-digit code in Australia. And then they can report that. On the ACCBS website, there's a section there for reporting abandoned bird. Even if they find a bird that's deceased, it's got a band on it, they can still report that information. That tells us how long minimum age of that bird, because when we record the bird, we age it, we take measurements as a starting point, whether it's, a, for example, a juvenile bird when we first catch it or whether it's an adult bird. If it's an adult bird, we don't know exactly how old it is, but at least it gives us an idea of how long that bird survived since it was banded. So where does that data go? It sits in a database. As I said before, anybody can access that data if they're studying a particular species for their PhD or want to write a paper about something, they can contact the ACCBS to see what data is available about that species or a certain group of birds. So that database, is it linked to iNaturalists or Atlas of Living Australia? I believe it may, the data may go to the Atlas of Living Australia, but that's something that the ACCBS does and that's there's always talks ongoing about sharing the data. I think those talks may still be in the early stages. But it's hoped that the data sharing will happen sooner rather than later. How important are the sanctuaries like Broughton Island for our birds? Uh, they're very important, particularly for... Um, Things like seabirds who nest on islands out in the middle of the ocean where there's no people. Things like albatross, terns and things like that. They really need those places where there's no disturbance by people and preferably no feral animals like cats and rats and dogs racing around the place and destroying the habitat. What about pollution? Pollution for seabirds is a big problem, particularly with plastics in the ocean. But it's also a problem with shorebirds. Things like fishing line and fishing net left on beaches can cause real problems for birds that are foraging on the sand and on the beaches, gets tangled around their feet or around their legs. They can't walk properly, which means they then can't forage properly. And if they aren't rescued, then they can die or have long-term injuries. They can even lose feet. Do you spend a lot of your time rescuing birds as well as banding? Not a lot, although we did one recently and we were successful in rescuing it. Well done. Removing fishing net from its feet. Do you have anything to do with bats? Just thinking about the nets you use, is it the same technique for capturing bats, surveying bats? We don't do bats. It's a similar thing. Mist nets can be used for insect bats. We try not to catch them because they get terribly tangled. And if you happen to get a fruit bat in your net when you're banding at night, um, like we do for shorebirds, you have to grab it with a towel. If you're immunised, you need to make sure that you're immunised against Lisa virus and you literally have to cut the bat out of the net. And then you've got to get all the netting off the bat before you can release it. Otherwise, insect bats 
are generally caught with a harp track, which is strings, not a net. Are these nets expensive to purchase or replace? Around $100, give or take each. And they come from overseas. You have to have a license to buy them. Would a bird ever have more than one band on its leg? It can have more than one band. If you catch a bird that, for example, has been banded and the band is very worn, then you can put a band on the other leg. But generally, it's only got more than one band if it's got a metal band and then a collar band or bands. Are you excited about bird banding for the future? In Australia, there's only a small number of banders compared to our population, maybe 300 people take. And a lot of those are becoming older at the point where they're no longer physically capable of of going out and doing banding. So it's really important to try and get young people that are keen on board. We're lucky in the Hunter where we've got a number of trainee banders coming up that are just starting out. So hopefully in the future, there'll be more people to take over we're doing. As I said, we've got projects in different habitats, um, shorebirds and bushbirds. It's possible we may even get in, be able to get into seabirds. First of all, we need to find a boat. So. so you're putting a call out for a donation of a boat? Boat, like a fishing boat that's low to the water. If we don't band, we don't find out information about the birds. I mean, so much knowledge that we have about birds now is has come from banding. Banding in Australia started in the late, late 60s, I believe, and it was introduced to Australia from banders that came over from Britain. Yeah, it's much more popular than it is here. Bird watching in general is much more popular. Things like how long a bird lives. We wouldn't know those things if we hadn't been banding them. A little bird, a thornbill, 8 to 10 grams long, can live for at least 17 years, whereas an albatross might be 70 years. But if we hadn't banded and individually marked those birds, we wouldn't know that. That's fantastic. What about climate change and the impacts on bird numbers or bird breeding habits? People are starting to notice some of those things. There's birds that live at high altitudes, for example, whereas if it gets hotter, they can't go any higher because they're at the highest altitude for where they commonly reside. So if the habitat changes, then there's no habitat, then there's no bird. There's also a habitat loss through human intervention, particularly for shorebirds, countries up and down the flyway, fill in estuaries and fill in swamps where these birds need to forage to make their migrations. And there's been significant drops in the numbers of shorebirds over the last 10 or 20 years. So bird banding is a tracking or monitoring activity for our bird species around the world? Yes, it is. And there's various ways to go about that from the small scale to the larger scale where you can put a transmitter on a bird and it can fly those migration routes. We find out where they're stopping or trying to stop along the flyways and what can be done to protect the habitat in those countries. Does it tell you anything about what they feed on? It tells you where they're feeding and then there's different types of work that can be done so people can then go out and study well, what what is there that they might be eating and that depends on the type of bird it is, whether it's a nectar feeder, fruit eater or a shorebird who's eating olives and things that live in the um, in the mud flats. Sometimes you see bird bodies washed up on shore and you think, why have they all died? A bird band is likely to be contacted to go out and inspect something like that? Not usually. Quite often that will be seabirds, for example, shearwaters. And that usually happens when they're heading off to breeding sites. They're on a mission to get where they're going. And by the time they get there, some of them are exhausted. And it's usually just exhaustion, unless there's things like oil spills or things like that. People often wonder what happens to the birds in bushland that's been cleared, whether it's for housing or agriculture. We sort of go, they'll be fine. They just fly away. No, it's not. Sometimes so much clearing going 
gone, it's too far for those birds to fly to the next patch of bush. Do you find numbers increase next to cleared areas? Is, is that something that you've noticed? For example, on Broughton Island, on the mainland, we get fairy wrens, little birds and scrub wrens, but they're not found on Broughton Island, yet they've only got three kilometres of water to cross. But a silver eye, which is a similar size to a fairy wren, they're everywhere. So it depends on the species and, and their ability to cross open space. Should dog owners be mindful of disturbing birds? A really good example of that is where you've got beach nesting birds like little terns, for example. They're protected and their nesting sites are fenced during the breeding season. Signs everywhere no dogs on the beach and yet almost every day you will see people with dogs on the beach often off leash and they get very defensive if anybody says anything to them which is unfortunate because they think their dog's not doing any harm but it's actually causing a lot of harm to the birds. The little terns they're a threatened species aren't they? Have you noticed a good news story while you've been banding over the years where a threatened or vulnerable species may have increased in number? That's a tricky one but I guess one of the things that has been good in the last few is is that with our migratory shorebirds, a lot of those stop in China and for many years the Yellow Sea and areas along the edge of the Yellow Sea were degraded. It's now been, that habitat is now being protected by the Chinese government. So that's been a real win for those migratory shorebirds. Thanks, Judy, for coming on the show. Just one last thing. Where can people find out more information about bird banding? You can go to their local bird club. There's often people in local bird clubs that are involved in bird banding, but if not, they can contact the Australian Bird and Bat Banding Scheme or the ACCBS. They can look on their website and there's information on there. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.